You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, listeners. Uh, welcome to the to Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in uh, Karenport, Saskatchewan. And today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Heather Vosick. Uh, Dr. Vosick earned her, a doctorate from Duke Divinity School, and she currently serves as Associate Dean of Academics and Assistant Professor of Church History at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Uh, she is the author of the book Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness, uh, which we will be discussing here today. Uh, so, Dr. Vasek, uh, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm glad to be talking to you. All right. Uh, if you would, uh, could you please tell us the story behind the book? Uh, so, what got you interested in the project, uh, and uh, why the focus specifically on Protestants, uh, examining instead of examining other possibilities, uh, like for example the, uh, the substantial uh, contributions uh, that uh, Catholic and Jewish scholars have made to the development of modern psychiatry? Um, and uh, in your book, you focus on five individuals uh, as sort of emblematic of uh, these historical periods. What led you to choose uh, these five individuals uh, instead of others? And uh, if you have any stories about your research project uh, process to sort of putting the book together, that, uh, that'd be good. If you could please, please let us know, uh, let us in on those. Sure. Well, let me start with a little bit about how the book came about. In, in general, I'm curious about how belief and practice shape one another and fascinated by the fact that sometimes uh, similar beliefs spark different practices in people. And a, while, a number of years ago, I worked as a student chaplain in a state mental hospital in the U.S., in North Carolina, and I realized as I was working there that Christian reactions to mental illness seemed more complicated, for example, than reactions to minor surgery or cancer treatment, and I began to think about why that was the case. And it was certainly true in my experience that in a typical modern congregation, it appeared that individuals, that families navigating anything from cancer to a child having a minor surgery, tonsils coming out, for example, were likely to receive a different sort of support than those families struggling with cases of mental illness, um, acute mental illness, or even uh, chronic mental illness. And Again, this raised curiosity for me, had this always been the case, what shaped that? And for a while, as I was early in the project, I joked about the title being about who gets a casserole. So what are the events within congregations that shape who, who receives what kind of care? And so those are the kind of questions that stood at the background for me, along with a, an understanding that Christians have a conviction about care for the well-being of body, mind, and soul. And so, again, there seemed to be this difference in the kind of care that was dispensed. And I wondered, I wondered what the history was. My choice of looking at Protestants throughout history was for a number of reasons. Again, given this interest in how belief and practice shape one another, focusing on Protestants let me narrow the set, if you will, of the set of Christians I was exploring in that that means that narrows the set of sources I'm looking at. And because I was looking to stand, for the most part, throughout time inside Christian communities with clergy, with lay people, with people who suffered, and look at church and world through those eyes, it gave me um, a, a more limited set of congregations and publications 
as the vantage point, and because my study runs from the colonial era through about 1980, uh, this is a time when in America, in North America, Protestants were the vast majority of Americans, certainly by the early 20th and the mid-20th century that started to shift. And if I were to rewrite a broad history looking beyond 1965, for example, it would make sense to, to cover the vast majority of Americans by looking a little bit more broadly. But this let me, again, dig deeply into this tension between belief and practice, do it within a, a, a focused area, but also an area that covered the vast majority of Americans in the period that I studied in terms of congregations and uh, claims to Christianity. Um, you asked also about why these five individuals, and so I trace this history looking at social forces, political forces, uh, the changes in medicine, but anchored in five biographical accounts, and those individuals really emerged through the research. Again, when the project started, it had a little bit different shape. I thought it was going to be an in-depth exploration of the 20th century, looking at how mainline and how evangelical Christians um, thought and acted differently in terms of care for mental illness. And I was going to do just a little bit of back history. But as I started to research that back history, I realized there was a rich story there and a story that hadn't been told. There are histories of colonial treatment of mental illness, but, but not, there weren't any there with this element about how Christian faith and mental illness intersected with one another. And so I wanted to tell that story. And these five figures are figures who staked a pretty definite claim in each period of history in one way or the other. And so they ended up being logical choices. They aren't always figures that sometimes they're the exception to the, to the rule in their era, which also makes them interesting in a way to offer a way to compare and contrast. They offer also, so four men, one women, they span a number of Protestant denominational bodies, uh, Puritan, sort of loosely Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Unitarian, and a couple more Presbyterians at the end. And so it gives a little bit of a mix. And they, of course, are all in conversation with one another. So that's the story of uh, the questions that drove some of the initial research and how it came to, to, to be in the shape that it is. Uh, if we turn to... Um... Uh, the first uh, of your historical figures. Uh, you talk about uh, the role that uh, Cotton Mather played. Uh, and uh, Cotton Mather has a, a rather unpleasant reputation uh, in, uh, in some of the, uh, the publications that I've interacted uh, connected with positive psychology. Uh, in the volume Character Strengths and Virtues, uh, for example, um, Christopher Peterson and Martin Seligman uh, talk about the psychological study of character strengths and uh, and of uh, virtue and moral character, and they specifically you know try to avoid being kind of you know dour, grumpy moralists. And uh, the way that they phrase it is they say uh, that uh, we don't want a grim-faced Cotton Mather uh, to be the uh, the emblem of the positive psychology movement. Uh, so yeah, this I that. Cotton Mather, he's, yeah, he's got this reputation um, st stemming uh, to some degree or another from his involvement in the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, but in, in your chapter, we see a picture of uh, Cotton Mather as someone who is deeply concerned 
with healing and helping those who suffer, uh, as one who uh, offers no moral condemnation to those who are afflicted with mental illness. Uh, so, uh, as you're doing your historical research, did it surprise you to discover the softer side of cotton? Uh, or is this something that you know, historians pretty much already knew? Is this a, a, a is is this a me problem that I'm seeing this? Uh, is the problem that I'm a product of the public school system, and I've read The Crucible uh, one too many times? Yeah, this is a great question because there's a lot here. So, cut. So, is he a, a, is Cotton Mather grim faced? I think that my answer would be yes and no. Uh, and and so I guess as I looked at Mather, there are some things that surprise me. But the fact that he is a really complex figure and is both loving and caring and has a bit of a reputation for being um, morally inflexible, uh, that doesn't surprise me. So, so Mather, Mather, above all, is someone who has a sense, so he's at the end of the Puritan generation, of someone who has a deep sense of awe for God being the divine being the divine and humans not being divine and all of human life pointed towards trying to turn oneself to God. And this really animates um, all of his writing, all of his writing about medicine. So he authored the first medical journal in the American colonies, uh, in which he is both offering advice, but he's also collecting medical advice from around the world. So not, not surprising he's well-read. And most of his advice is trying, again, to turn individuals himself and others to to God, to be in relationship with God. Um, and I, I will admit, and there are other historians who will admit to seeing both sides of Cotton Mather and kind of liking him. Someone like uh, Rick Kennedy, who's written recently a book called The First American Evangelical, A Short Life of Cotton Mather, offers a, a, a portrayal of Mather that shows, shows good alongside bad. So yes, he was involved in the Salem Witch Trials, uh, there is historical work that indicates that his role in them was somewhat exaggerated. So he gets the he ends up as the lightning rod of the one dr driving the show. But he actually provided counsel for some of the women and tried to stem some of the excesses over time. And his own accounts of the rest of his life make clear um, his love for his congregation and his love for his family. And so there's this reading his journals. There's this really touching moment where he is sitting at the bedside of his wife as she is dying and holding her hand and, and um, recalling that he is resigning himself to having say, to say goodbye, um, say goodbye to one he loves saying, um, you know, I gently put her out of my hands and laid away a most lovely hand resolving that I could never touch it anymore. And we seem the same kind of care about, uh, about his children as they suffer. And so is he grim-faced? Yes um, and no. Mostly he is curious. He's curious about how the world works. He's curious about why illness might exist. And he, unlike many of us, doesn't draw a line between sacred, sacred and secular. Everything is part of the same whole. And so things that are happening in the here and now he understands must be part of God's plan and is working to interpret them. And again, even in his medical journal, um, it's sort of interspersed with the language of prayer and trying to diagnose the full human condition. And so for me, the surprise was certainly that there was no condemnation for sufferers of, of mental illnesses. 
The one place where he does condemn illness in his medical volume is about venereal disease. And he does so in a way that he says, I'm not actually going to talk about this topic, giving the sense that if you are suffering, you deserve to suffer. <laughs> um, but that is not the case at all as he talks about as he talks about madness, as he talks about melancholy. And that was a surprise for me. I also expected much more discussion throughout my research of forces of the demonic and demonic possession. Um, and that was not nearly as prevalent as I had expected. It's certainly there, but I expected it to sort of rule the conversation along the way, and it and it didn't. Uh, yeah, looking at uh, some of the, the histories of psychiatry and psychology that I've read, it's uh, uh, surprising sometimes uh, how... Uh, how, uh, how some contemporary descriptions of uh, of, of older uh, generations of uh, earlier eras being obsessed with demons as the causes for everything are terribly overblown uh, descriptions. Uh, one of the things mm -hmm. that I sometimes talk about when uh, I'm covering some history of psychology. Um, I, I talk a little bit about uh, some medieval psychiatry and get into the work of uh, uh, Bartholomaeus Anglicus, uh, who believed that mental illness was due to what uh, was due to chemical imbalances in the brain. Uh, so yeah, <clears throat> so yeah, demons were not blamed for everything in them olden days. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, so it's interesting, and it's interesting then that that's the that that is a more modern perception of what must have been ha happening in the past. Okay, uh, in your next chapter, uh, you focus on the Presbyterian physician Benjamin Rush. Uh, now, I, I have a fascination for the history of psychology, and I uh, spend a lot of time teaching about it and talking about it. And uh, yet, I had always been taught that uh, it was William James who is the father of American psychology, and uh, I find very little material on Rush uh, in the uh, volumes that fill my bookshelves. So uh, for me and for the listeners, uh, please introduce us to this interesting character and tell us why Benjamin Rush is the one who should rightly be called the father of American psychology. Yeah, great. Um, so Benjamin Rush, it's probably better to label him the father of American psychiatry, um, and leave leave William James as the title with the earning the title of the father of American psychology. Rush, I made my way to Rush because he was a key figure in medicine in the colonial era in North America, colonial era and after the founding of um, the United States of America. And he, as many were, was uh, involved in many spheres of public life. And so he, in the medical world, helped train some estimate a large percentage or of, of American physicians of his time. So either directly and indirectly, he either trained them or trained those who trained them. He helped found hospitals, particularly in Philadelphia. But he was also a friend with presidents and statesmen. So he and Jefferson and Adams were friends. He and Thomas Paine were friends and Benjamin Franklin. He's someone who signed the Declaration of Independence. He advocated for education. He spent time with Richard Allen, the founder of, of the African-American Episcopal Church, and so well-connected, um, but had a clear sense of vocation in medicine. Um, raised in a family with, with a very clear religious instruction in which he envisioned 
that he needed to be of use to a, of society and that being of use to society was founded in a, a faith and a belief in goodness and God, goodness and humanity and to find his place in it. And I think that really animated all of his endeavors, not just his medical endeavors. And as he worked as a physician, he has all these connections, but he is, um, he is clear that he is happy to be a blessing to those in need. And so he spent much of his medical practice tending to those uh, who could not pay him, working with the poor. He sort of said his connections weren't good enough to have, to have rich clients, but it seems that that might not actually have been the case. Um, but he, he had a desire to heal. He did that through medicine, through equipping others. He was a professor at the Philadelphia College of Physicians. He was curious about things like preventative medicine, from clothing to the food of soldiers. He, he offered advice to the military about what kind of shirts, um, what kind of drink or not soldiers should be partaking in, and so use of preventative medicine. He also held on to, uh, is somewhat famous or infamous for this, held on to past, uh, a past understanding of the humors in the human body and treatments that would respond to them. So uh, bloodletting was clearly in his repertoire, uh, which in some cases, um, even in, for mental illness, seemed to be effective. So for example, in, in, in someone who is exhibiting uh, mania, you can imagine that, I can imagine that draining a significant portion of their blood would calm them down. And so he, he's looking for cause and effect with the tools he has available. He invented, um, so he, worked, he talked about physical ailments, but he also said, and this was near the end of their life, that he found um, great pleasure in combating bodily disease. But he said, what is this pleasure compared to that of restoring a fellow creature from anguish and folly of madness and reviving within him the knowledge of himself, his family, his friends, and his God? And so particularly at the end of his life, his focus turned toward trying to figure out mental distress. Um, he, as part of this, I was talking about treatments, he created a, a tranquilizer chair, a chair that one sat in and it spun the individual in the chair around to make the blood rush to their head, uh, which he found effective for uh, curing some sort of treatments. It fell out of favor pretty quickly, which is perhaps a good thing. Any reader of uh, 17th, 18th, and even 19th century medicine um, is often left thankful for moving past some treatments. He, yes, indeed. Yeah, and even more than physical treatments, he paid attention to what, what became to be known as moral treatments, which is not about fixing people's morality, but is a bard from the French in a sense of holistic treatment, thinking about the setting and the environment in which patients found themselves noting that a calm, soothing environment surrounded by um, uh, a, a cleanly space. He, was, he advocated for men being with men, women being with women. So thinking about controlling the environment as being restorative to health in addition to physical cures. And so as he is working on trying to document mental illness, and he does this in, in near the end of his life in a volume called Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon Diseases of the Mind, a volume published in 1812. He's trying to make sense of mental distress, and he, he earns this sense of being the father of American psychiatry from documenting um, his observations in a way that served as a resource for those who followed him for, for, for a number of decades. Now, um... 
In chapter three of your book, there is a section uh, in which you deal with the idea that uh, that that modern society may itself be a cause of mental illness. Uh, now, this is a notion that uh, still has a number of supporters, uh, including in our, our current day uh, evolutionary psychologist David Buss, uh, who claims that uh, we can experience problems due to the fact that modern life is drastically, sometimes painfully, uh, different uh, from the Paleolithic context in which our brains evolved. Uh, and uh, also uh, Barry Schwartz's argument that modern life overloads us uh, with too many options, creating what he calls the tyranny of choice, uh, which he blames for the current rise in, among other things, uh, clinical depression. Uh, what was the shape of this argument in 19th century America? So the argument from, from your description sounds quite similar to me. So looking around a, at a world that is changing and the, the change that was happening uh, early and Early to mid 19th century uh, is is huge huge changes. So the nation is still quite new in the U.S. Um, significant growth of urban populations, and so the economy is shifting from almost an entire agricultural economy to a more urban mercantile economy. So the shape of of daily life is changing for many. There's significant immigration from Europe early to mid 19th century. And so as psychiatrists, they, they would probably call themselves alienists at this point, look around the world and try to understand what is going on. Uh, they might sound like someone like the psychiatrist Edward Jarvis, who says that insanity is part of the price we pay for civilization. And so, it, but he puts it in a pocket. He says it's not about improvements in the arts, about being able to live more comfortably, about elevation of morals. It's because there are more opportunities and rewards for, for those, you know, so using your mental capacity can, has more options. So that I hear that connection to that tyranny of choice that you've mentioned. But there then can be more disappointments, he says, more means and provocations for sensual indulgence, more dangers, more accidents, more injuries. And so the sense that as the world is changing, there are uh, both more opportunities for gain, but also more opportunities from loss that tax the human brain in a way that mean uh, that mental distress, mental illness, insanity is more likely. And so, I, I mean, I hear this as a diagnosis of reaction to change. Now, uh, connected with that issue, uh, this uh, the um, how the claim that modern civilization can foster mental illness uh, fed uh, at into uh, we might call a kind of psychiatric racism, uh, while modern um, modern Americans were seen as more prone to mental disorders, uh, those described at the time as quote unquote less civilized were thought to be relatively more mentally healthy. And that got my brain going in all kinds of interesting directions. Uh, thinking about uh, people like uh, like Shaftesbury, like Rousseau, uh, the, the, this, the, the whole the noble savage thing, and this idea that the so-called noble savages are better than we are because they are closer uh, to nature and the true human condition. Uh, what, what I found um, especially fascinating was when you got to the section talking about slaves in the southern U.S., um, being considered less prone to mental illness 
uh, because as a quote unquote more primitive people, uh, they are therefore you know less civilized and less vulnerable to these um, the, the the madness that civilization brings. Uh, but uh, freed freed slaves in the north were described as ten times more vulnerable. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, this might be uh, seen as an, uh, an example of uh, the potential danger of psychiatry uh, being used to validate the status quo and existing structures of power. Um, <clears throat> there's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of directions that we could take uh, that, and a lot of examples uh, in, in our own. Uh, in our own century, but uh, when I deal with this issue in my classes, talking about how uh, psychiatry can be misused uh, to defend these uh, these um, institutions, I use the example of drapetomania. Uh, drapetomania was a 19th century ailment uh, that was proposed that uh, suppo supposedly afflicted uh, slaves, uh, causing them to be resentful of their servitude and unhealthily desire freedom. Um, so, uh, do you think that I might be onto something here, trying to see this this pattern, these connections, thinking that uh, uh, we kind of put these together, there might be a pattern in which um, slavery is justified uh, and validated uh, through the argument that slaves who know their place are better off, uh, while those who yearn for freedom are more mentally dysfunctional. And then the worst case scenario uh, would be a slave uh, who has the great misfortune of actually obtaining freedom. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So my sense of this, this is clearly about power. Who has it? Who gets to control it? Who gets to define what is normal and a normal reaction? And also as a way to offer diagnoses that say that uh, that justify behavior of those who are in power. So yes, I think that's the case. I mean, and so uh, someone like Ian Evison uh, has noted that broader social ethics and a sense of normative behavior pattern, patterns have shaped these kind of psychiatric diagnoses in a number of different cases. So you've mentioned um, slaves running away from their masters. There was also a sense during the suffragette campaign as women uh, it agitated to get to the right to vote that there was discussion about whether their discontent was a form of nervousness that rest cure, if they just went away and rested, it might solve. And so, sure, that would stop them from agitating because they were out of the picture. But you, So you hear power dynamics here. Uh, again, drawing on Evison's work, during Vietnam, psychiatrists discussed how to cure an inappropriate reluctance of soldiers to go into battle, which it seems to me like that might be actually a really healthy reaction, not to run towards one's certain or likely death. Um, and more, we can certainly, and people have, traced the history of what appears in something like the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, as smoking, um, homosexuality, make their way in and out of that. And so I think that in a number of different ways, power and control are part of the story. And again, thinking about who has it, how definitions shape perceptions of normal, um, and then um, control those percept control what normal is. And I think that all of this for me is is connected. part of part of my work is thinking about how 
stigma surrounding mental illness grew pretty significantly. I'd expected, as I've said, for stigma to have been a much more significant factor even in the colonial era. But I think it's some of these kind of power dynamics that help shape some of the stigma that that uh, seems to so closely cling to mental illness. Okay, okay. Uh, moving on to uh, your next histor- historical figure. Uh, Dorothea Dix's work centered around the effort to reform mental institutions. Uh, could you give uh, our listeners some context for this? Uh, so what was the state of institutional care in the 19th century, and why did it need to be reformed? Uh, also, how successful uh, would you say Dix's efforts at reform were? So as the 19th century started, uh, the majority of dependent Americans who couldn't be cared for at home were cared for in small public institutions, in, in poor houses, almshouses. Earlier in the colonial era with a much more agricultural economy, those family members, those citizens who didn't have family members who needed care were, were most often cared for by their families or within the local community. But as the economy shifted and more individuals worked further away from home, it became harder to provide that kind of care. And so almshouses, poor houses tended uh, to house a number of different types of individuals together, uh, widows, those who were ill, um, those who could not hold employment for a variety of reasons. Dorothea Dix's connection to these sorts of institutions happened in the following way. Uh, so the s- story goes, she was walking down a street in Massachusetts, heard a couple individuals lamenting the horrible conditions at a local prison. Not too long thereafter, found herself teaching Sunday school um, in in that local prison and saw for herself how horrible those conditions were. So those who were suffering from mental illnesses were um, living side by side with criminal offenders and the conditions for all of them were horrible. She was curious about whether this was the case other places. She was a woman uh, of some means, both because she was a teacher, had published some children's books, but also because of some inheritance. And so had the means to do some travel, spent two years on the road, if you will, on horseback, uh, by her estimate, traveling something like 10,000 miles on horseback, going town to town, small town, larger city, checking out almshouses and poorhouses and trying to see if the conditions were the same. And what, and what she found horrified her. So people chained, um, people living in filth, in their own filth. And it was a scenario repeated over and over, in part thanks to help from the reformer Horace Mann, one of her friends. She was able to put together a document that was shared Um, In 1843, with the legislature of Massachusetts, this is her memorial to the legislature, legislature, which documented her years of observations. It garnered public attention. It also garnered public funding. And as she repeated this exercise um, across the country, she this is also a period where uh, legislatures are are eager and happy and able to fund public institutions Um, She helps expand or found something like 40 different uh, mental institutions across the country, largely sort of Midwest through the Northeast. She was well connected with those who ran those institutions, often a conduit of information between the men who served as lead physicians, as superintendents or alienists in those institutions. Those weren't the first institutions for insane 
um, as they would have been called then, Americans at, in the U.S. and in North America. Um, earlier institutions existed, things like the Friends Asylum in Frankfurt, Pennsylvania, run by Quakers, um, built on a model of, of moral treatment adopted from Europe, a very holistic kind of care. But those institutions tended to be limited in scope, limited in size, in part because they tended um, to offer care first, if not exclusively, to members of the religious traditions um, that founded them. And so Dix's efforts helped expand this care significantly. And your question about how successful Duke's, or Dix's reform efforts were, I'd answer in two ways. Um, in terms of establishing institutions, in terms of doing what she set out to do to create spaces for more individuals to be cared for, um, she was wildly successful. Again, she, she was at this time where legislatures were receptive to doing the kind of work she was hoping to do. And so those institutions were founded and grew and cared um, as well as can be, it seems, at that time for folks. I would say if the measure is how much staying power that good care had, um, we might need to name her reform efforts as less successful. As those large institutions grew, they started to attract more and more um, demand. And not very. it didn't take long for them to be overtaxed in terms of uh, the number of patients in them. And this is where asylums as one of the places where asylums as horrible, crowded, over places to be sort of the image from um, early 20th century movies about insane asylums come from. And that good provision of care that she and those early superintendents who she knew hoped for, longed for, did not, um, was not sustainable. Moving ahead a bit into the 20th century, uh, you describe the uh, Christian response in the post-war years uh, to mental illness uh, from World War II to 1980 as uh, uh, cooperative and optimistic, but ultimately detached. Uh, what do you mean by that? So as I looked at the 20th century, I find that I was a little bit surprised at the changes in response. Um, I was aware, uh, writing from the early 21st century, that there was some engagement between Christians, between Protestants, um, some concern about mental illness. But I didn't realize the, the shape and the progression uh, of that kind of interest in the 20th century. And it's quite clear in the years around World War II, just following World War II, that there was this really heightened desire on the part of Christians, particularly mainline Protestants, to do something, to do something about institutional care, to attend well to those who suffered, to attend well to those who suffered. Uh, An article in the Christian Century around this time talked about our state mental hospitals. So, as a place that um, that Christians should be attending to, this sort of sense that God was at work in the world, not just in the church. But by the late 20th century, uh, the reflections in a periodical like Christianity Today. Uh, are much more detached. There's a clear sense that mainline Protestants have a deep desire for suffering to be alleviated, but there's also a sense that somebody besides them was taking care of this work. So this was happening with secular providers. This is also after the time of a massive deinstitutionalization in the U.S., and so there was no longer this central focus, central institutional focuses, focus for mainline Christians. Um, 
the conversation on the evangelical Protestant side was a little bit different in the 20s. Uh, being very attentive to what good care looked like um, and a little bit more suspicion about the provision of secular care, wanting to make sure that it was deeply um, grounded in uh, beliefs and practices that would cohere with evangelical Christianity. And sometimes this was uh, more often appeared in, in evangelical periodicals than in mainline periodicals. There was the sense that suffering was productive. Um, this sometimes led to an understanding of medication as something that might not be called for, in part because this might be a spiritual problem, not a physical problem, but also a sense that sometimes God provided suffering in a way that could be productive for the individual and for the body of Christ at large. And so a 1986 article in Christianity Today talked about the blessings of mental anguish and pointed to um, great thinkers in the church like Kierkegaard and Spurgeon as those whose mental illness had brought fruit for the tradition. And so there is this um, attention on both parts, but from the time around World War II where, where Christian century, for example, spent more time talking about mental illness in articles and reviews than anything else to a, an infrequent discussion as the century drew to a close. All right. Um... So for the last question, I'll uh, just open it up and ask you to lay out your ideas that uh, you cover in the uh, the final part of your book about the practice of hospitality as a way forward in establishing a Christian response to mental illness. Sure. Uh, because my curiosity, again, as I, as I started the conversation, is about how belief and practice um, shape one another. Given what I see and understand to be a conviction um, a conviction for care for the whole human body, mind, and soul. Um, this investigation led me, as I was closing the book, to think about what might be one sort of response in a, in a sense that if you know one suffers, we all suffer together. And here uh, I talk about hospitality, not as a um, you know coffee and cookies after church on a Sunday morning, but what might a deep practice of embodied hospitality look like in the face of mental illness. And I talk about this in four parts, a sense of welcome. And I'm thinking really congregationally here, but this could happen in other contexts. Uh, welcome is a place where Christians um, recognize because they have been welcomed by God, create similar spaces for others to be welcomed. Um, my, my time as a chaplain at a, at a mental hospital, I heard story after story of those who suffered feeling unwelcome, uh, feeling like burdens. And so a conscious effort on the part of communities to think about what it might mean to, to open the doors, if you will, to, to welcome. A second move in hospitality for me, though, is about compassion, not just being in the same space, but understanding the suffering of one another, understanding the rejoicing of one another, um, and trying deeply to get to know one another in a way that can do things like reduce the stigma that seems to be so powerful in preventing connection. So from welcome to compassion to incorporation, so not just being in conversation, but being in life together, um, sort of a sense of solidarity, not just for those who suffer, but solidarity with one another. And I also think hospitality in, in many situations, but particularly in terms of a, what is often a chronic illness like mental illness, um, need, calls for patience, for a tolerance for unpredictability, um, 
and the ability among the community to think about what it might mean to be together to provide hospitable space for the long haul. And so some, some reflections there on um, to prompt thinking within particular communities, given this history, given how it's looked over time, uh, what, what might a community today talk about? Thank you very much, Dr. Vasek, for uh, taking the time to talk with us about your book. Uh, so uh, what can we expect from you in the future? Uh, are there any projects that uh, you're currently working on? There are. Um, again, given my interest in belief and practice uh, and a particular fascinating fascination with that in terms of how suffering shapes reactions, my next project is going to be uh, to trace a history of suffering in the American context, um, in the American Christian context. How has, um, how has context shaped reactions? And this really came um, to mind to me most clearly standing last June at a prayer service following the tragic shootings at Mother, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and looking um, at a room full of very, here at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, a room full of very different um, individuals from across the city of Pittsburgh of many different faith traditions and realizing while the lament was shared, the language around that one particular kind of suffering uh, was both shaped by context, race, class, gender, religious tradition, um, shaped understandings, but also shaped reactions beyond that lament. And so um, I'm hoping to paint a picture that, that helps take us from Cotton Mather in the colonial era who just expects suffering to be part of life. It is part of God's world. There is suffering and there is not suffering. Um, to the under, other end of the spectrum, if you will, someone like Joel Osteen, who often narrates suffering as failure, a failure of faith on the part of the individual or, um, or their family members. And so uh, my question is, how did we get from from Cotton Mather to Joel Osteen, because I trust that there is a trajectory that gets from gets from part A to part B, and I'm sure the path is winding um, and shaped again by context, and in particular in the U.S. the context of of slavery and the and the lasting um, inroads of slavery. No doubt. Okay, uh, listeners, the book again is Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness. Uh, a uh, link will be posted on the show notes. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Vasek, for uh, coming on to talk with us. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or at our website, christianhumanist.org. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our hardworking audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Charles Hackney, uh, wishing you all well.